Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining Jews in Nebraska to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in Omaha, and I'm joined with my co-host, Liz Felstern in Jerusalem. Today, Liz, you and I will be discussing what the heck is going on in Israel and will it work? Liz, it's good to see you, and let's start. What do you think? What's going on in Israel? Good to see you, Alan. Um, well, right now, I think this is Israeli politics at its most edge-of-your-seat, nail-biting, exciting way that it plays out. Um, and, and nobody knows exactly what will happen, but it definitely feels like something is happening. Something is happening this week, one way or the other. Um, I don't know exactly what will happen. I don't know who will be happy about it and who will be unhappy about it. But as opposed to how we were feeling immediately after this election, when it felt like we're never going to get out of this cycle of election after election after election, and that there would be fifth elections on the way, it feels like that's not the case, at least not right now. And another route is going to be explored. So the way I see it from where I'm sitting in Omaha, it looks like all these people got together with one goal in mind, and that was to get rid of uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Do you think that that's the primary goal of this group of eight parties? I think that that is a significant part of what these parties have in common. However, it's important to keep in mind that that wasn't the, the only or even a goal for all of these parties, right? Some of them from the outset were willing to sit and said very clearly that they were willing to sit in a government with or without Netanyahu, that that was not going to be their, their main issue, that they, they wanted to, to join a government based on other priorities and other areas in which they feel like, you know, certain things need to happen in Israel. And so it, it is about more than just getting Netanyahu out of office, but that's, that's a big piece. Also, what I see is it's actually Israel's democracy working, having to build these coalitions of very different ideologies to come together to form a government. Uh, there are eight parties that have come together, led by um, Yair Lapid, who was given the authority or the permission to form a government. Uh, and he only has, what, 17 seats out of the 120. So he really needed to build a strong coalition. What's also interesting is that he has given up the first round of being prime minister to um, Naftali Bennett, who his party only, I think, had seven or eight seats. So it's a first time that somebody has, with more seats has given up uh, the power to be prime minister to somebody else. How is that playing out uh, from your perspective? I think you're right that it shows how Israeli democracy can work and sort of how those wheels of democracy turn. And it's different than how democracies in other parts of the world function. The, the system of checks and balances here isn't necessarily through, you know, three different branches of government, uh, although we do have three branches of government, but, you know, a lot of it happens at the, at the parliament Knesset level. 
with with having these kind of negotiations of of who will sit together and at what cost. And I think there are a lot of personalities at play and that and sometimes that pers- those personalities are what can make the difference in terms of the shape that the coalition takes, not just the numbers. Right? Why Naftali Bennett is going to get the opportunity to be prime minister at all and let alone in the first half of the term is definitely more about his personality than about the numbers. Um, it it speaks to the kind of governing that he wants to do and Lapid being comfortable with not being the first prime minister, knowing very well that that makes his chances of being prime minister at all slim to none. I think also says something about his personality. So if we look at that, that partnership, that was a similar partnership in the, was it the fourth, the third or the fourth election? It must've been the third election, right? Yeah. Where Benny Gantz um, and um, Prime Minister Netanyahu built this coalition with Benny Gantz uh, going second to Netanyahu's first uh, and, um, to be prime minister. So we're seeing that play out again. And that has happened in the past. But let's do a quick thing. Let's kind of review the eight parties that um, are now in this coalition to form a government. And we're recording this at the beginning of the week. And we know that the uh, opportunity could change rather quickly. Uh, but this week, we believe by Wednesday, they'll have the opportunity to, to solidify this um, government. So we have to begin with we have the uh, Yesha Teed, which is Yair Lapid's uh, mm-hmm. party. Then we have Blue and White, which is um, Benny Gantz. That, that's his party, right? Labor. Yamina, which is Naftali Bennett's party. Uh, Israel Betenu, which that's kind of... So you have Yamina, which is right, and then you have... Israel Batania, which is farther to the right than Yamina, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have um, New Hope, which is Gideon Tsar, who is also right of center. And then you have Meretz. And then you have um, Ram. Ram is the party of Mansour Abbas, uh, which is um, will be what I believe is the second time in Israel's history where an Arab party has a major seat at the table. Did I, did I leave anybody mm-hmm. out? I I think that's all eight. We did not mention that the head of the Labor Party is a woman. Um, so at least yes. we have one woman in the mix in terms of so, heads of parties. So it's interesting you should say that because, yes, it, uh, Marav Mechali is the leader of the um, Labor Party. And she's kind of revived the longstanding Labor Party that was one of the key leaders for many, many years in Israel. So one uh, woman leader, one um Islamic leader, Islamist uh, leader, uh, Mansour Abbas, uh, and then a mixture of other people. Uh, what I also read this week mm-hmm. religious that, and non-religious, Native Israeli, non-Native Israeli, it is very diverse. It's very diverse. So it's exciting to to draw on your enthusiasm. I th- I think for me sitting in Nebraska, just seeing the power of of this coalition coming together with very different ideologies is exciting 
but we also, as you said, are holding our breath to see if it actually holds. The flip mm-hmm. side to all of this, and I'll let you jump in in a second, is the amount of um, uh, stress or security concerns that many of these part leaders of these parties are receiving by opposition people. So I don't know if you want to address that as well, but I'm going to let you kind of run now with. Uh, yeah, thoughts. I mean, there there is a lot of opposition and there is a lot of stress, not just for the heads of each of these parties, but even for all of the members of all of these parties, right? When we say that there are eight parties and each one has a leader, but we're also talking about the fact that altogether there are 61 uh, members of Knesset that are meant to be part of this of this coalition, right? 61, meaning that they are a paper-thin majority and that any one person changing their mind or pulling out of joining this coalition topples the whole thing. And there have already been, right? The 61 is 61 because there are already party, uh, I don't know about members, but for sure member that have already said that they will not, you know, join this coalition. And there is a lot of pressure on some particular um, people who might be on the fence and who Netanyahu supporters or people that just do not like the idea of this coalition um, would like to see them pull out and have the whole thing not be possible. So that's one issue um, that, you, you know, as you mentioned, that there is a lot of pressure on these leaders. I've heard about, you know, uh, members of Knesset that are not even in their own homes right now because they're protesters outside constantly and they just they can't even be there. Um, the other type of anxiety and stress is a, not targeted at specific members of Knesset, but more broadly, what pro in Netanyahu or anti this, what people are painting as a left-wing coalition, um, what what that camp is planning to do over the next few days and whether they will in fact, you know, voice those opinions or, or and try to incite things that may create violence and possibly lead to this coalition not getting approved. Um, you know, uh, it's hard to know what will happen. I'm. I don't think that we're headed to. You know, Jerusalem looking like what Washington D.C. looked like when power was uh, handed over after the last election that you guys had. But there are people talking about that. Um, it's a possibility, right? Bibi has been in office for a very long time. Um, the people that support him support him no matter what, apparently doesn't matter how many indictments are brought against him or whatever other moral bankruptcy he seems to have, the people that support him, support him. And how much noise they're going to make, we'll find out over the next couple of days. So you've touched on quite a few things that I want to kind of piggyback on in a couple of different ways. One, you talk about the 61 seats um, and people not showing up to vote because they don't want to be recognized if they're, and it's mostly been from the Yamina party, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. About four people have said they're not going to show up or they will not support the government. 
then I also read that um, several members of the joint list, which is the other Arab party, has also said that they, even though they're not part of the coalition, they said that they would not show up to vote, which means that it would reduce the 120 to maybe 114 seats. And if I'm not mistaken, all they need is a majority of those in the Knesset at the time to form the government. Is that I, I'm not sure. That's a very interesting question. Um, so it would mean that they only need 57 uh, um, to support that. So I, we have to research that one. But I'm pretty. I think that's what I read the other day. I thought that was very interesting because you have people who just don't want to not have this government form, but they can't put their signature on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other was the, you kind of referred to it a second ago about the level of, of, um, in, of I would say, uh, I don't, security concerns for the lives of the individuals who have supported the coalition from the far uh, right supporters of Netanyahu trying to force this government to not be formed. And that uh, several of those individuals have had their lives threatened and so somebody brought up the issue to me the other day, is this a repeat of the Rabin um, period where um, the nationalists who oppose the changes uh, would threaten the lives of others? I don't know if you want to comment on that or is that am I way out there in my fear that uh, another uh, violent attack on a sitting member of Knesset uh, could impact the country. I am. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I was not in Israel yet when Robin was assassinated, so I can't tell you what it felt like, you know, prior to his assassination, like what what this, the feeling was on the street in Israel, and if this is somehow akin to that, I don't know. Um, I, I do think that there, in some ways, you know, Israel takes security more seriously, certainly after that. I mean, for a country to go through its first assassination of an elected leader changes everything. I um, I, I would certainly, I would like to think that that's not anywhere near where we are right now. And I haven't heard, certainly publicly, anybody calling for that kind of behavior. I mean, the specific type of incitement that I think we were worried about seeing before this Knesset vote um, is more akin to, and and the fact that they moved it up to Wednesday, I think is meant to thwart that because on Thursday, there's meant to be the rescheduled um, flag parade. So on, you know, on uh, Jerusalem Unification Day, which was a month ago, there's always a flag parade that goes all throughout Jerusalem and includes parts of the old city that are Arab neighborhoods. And because of everything that else that was going on in the country at the time, they rerouted much of that flag parade. And so it has been rescheduled for this coming Thursday. And to go in that original route now, especially while waiting for this, you know, Knesset vote was something that people thought was going to incite violence. But if the Knesset has already had their vote, it's sort of, 
you know, dumps a bucket of water on that attempt to rile things up, which is why I think they're the push is now for the vote to happen on Wednesday. So I, I think it just goes to what you said earlier about the rise of tension in the country and the different perspectives on the impact that this coalition can have. I'm going to shift our conversation just to another point that I want to make. It's another political component that took place at the end of the week last week, and that was the uh, transition from President Rivlin to the new president, uh, Isaac um, Puji Herzog, who at the time was the uh, leader of the Jewish agency. So that was a very interesting transition of some power. I don't know really yet the kind of power that uh, the president has, although the president is the one that calls for the leader of the party to make a government. So that's a pretty significant role. Uh, but uh, um, now President Herzog is a longtime leader, member of Knesset, very popular individual, uh, also comes from a long line of uh, key uh, Israeli leaders. And so I think it's interesting to have that um, evolve for him to be um, president uh, for Israel. I don't Do you have a thought on that? Yeah. I mean, not on him specifically, but the president of the office of president in Israel is really interesting. It's one of those offices that it tends to be what the person makes of it, right? Like what different presidents have done with their role has been very different depending on their interests. You know, Ruby Rivlin did a lot of really neat things with education, with reaching out to children. He did a huge anti-bullying campaign, which unfortunately is sort of not normal Israeli culture. And, and it really pushed uh, schools and, and Israelis to think about how we're teaching our children to talk to one another and what kind of behavior we will and will not accept in the public sphere. Um, and and it will be interesting to see, you know, where where Herzog wants to take the office, what he wants to do with his power, because they're not they're not bound politically in the same way that other offices are. They they can think about what is really important to them and what and what agenda they want to push forward. Does the president become more of a PR leader than a? It's a lot of PR. It's a lot of figurehead. But I personally think there's a lot of power in that, right? Especially nowadays when optics and sound bites mean even more than they did before the age of 24-hour news cycles and, and social media. I think that that gives that kind of PR outward-facing office a lot of power, right? The idea that it would be just, air quotes, a, a figurehead is not, I don't think, it speaks any longer to how, how that office functions. I, know I think that, there's a lot more meat to what they can do. So I, I believe that the meat behind electing uh, Isaac Herzog is the fact that he has a strong relationship with American Jews and the fact that he was leader of the Jewish agency and very much uh, a key figure in American Jewish Israeli relations issues um, around anti-Semitism and, and the shooting in, um, in Pittsburgh and in Poway. So he's got a, a, a presence in the American Jewish world that I don't think others have had. So you're mm -hmm. right. He gets he gets to build upon his 
you know, platform whatever he really wants to. And I think that part of that need that American and Israel relations, and you and I will discuss this more in depth as we continue our conversations, is building that bond between each other. And yeah. I, I look as, forward to that. By the way, do Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid in a way that a lot of Israeli politicians have not had, you know, not Netanyahu, right? Netanyahu had very strong ties to the U.S. as well. Um, but he was sort of held back in my perspective by his stronger ties to the ultra-Orthodox parties. But for Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, I think there are a lot of opportunities to strengthen those connections to diaspora Jewry and, and further the agenda of diaspora Jewry, which in many ways is diametrically opposed to the ultra-Orthodox agenda in Israel. And, and I think they're both going to want to do that. I think we'll we'll conclude on that. And when we come back again next week, we will know if this government actually had been formed. And uh, we will uh, kind of explore more the future of what this coalition, the impact this coalition will have on um, on Israel, but also the impact that it might have with American Jewish issues as well. Uh, any final thoughts, Liz, before we sign off? I, just that I hope everybody in Nebraska wishes us luck, that whatever the next few days holds, that it will be peaceful, and that if there is a transition of power, it can be done peacefully and, and for the good of Israel. And I just hope that all of the parties will come around to that way of thinking, even if it's not their first inclination. Great. Well, thank you all for listening to Israel Rebound with Liz Felser in Jerusalem and me, Alan Padesh in Omaha. Thank you all very much.